0: Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week. And for most of us, tomorrow will be Friday. But for some of you, wherever you all are in the world, it probably already is Friday. But nonetheless, we have made it to Friday. Well, it's good to be back on the air, as always. And here we are uh, once again discussing uh, the wreck of the Carl D., or as I like to call the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea by Michael Schumacher. And uh this uh episode that we're going to be discussing <clears throat> for this uh podcast segment, rather I should say, we're going to learn more about <clears throat> just how um unpredictable the month of November itself is, and we're also going to learn more about the uh fateful night of November 18th, 1958 we're also going to learn um, about some of the uh, crewmen. But then again, uh, throughout this uh, podcast series on the uh, Carl D. Bradley, we're going to learn also about other crewmen as well. So, after all, the uh, crewmen aboard this uh, boat have a story to tell. And, you know, while, yes, it may be a um, Great Lakes freighter vessel, or a freighter ship for that matter, the men who work aboard any Great Lakes ship, for that matter, it is fair to say that it's like serving in the military. You make sacrifices, not only um, to. Um, in this case, it's not about um, per, how do I say it. Yes, in a, to a degree, you are serving your country because you are doing the work that most other people aren't able to do. But two, you are uh, going above and beyond to ensure that people's goods. Mostly uh, businesses, for that matter, whom are dependent upon natural resources receive their goods in order to go about uh, manufacturing um, materials that will be essential for other people's businesses, uh, not only within a particular region, but uh, throughout the uh, greater United States. So our first uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment of The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley is the following. Is it fair to say that November by far and wide, is the most dangerous month to sail along Great Lakes waters. I would hope by now that all of us have an understanding about November. I mean, yes, any other month can could pose challenges, but November especially, by far and wide, is the most dangerous month. And for one, the weather can change quickly with little notice. So, for example, if a ship leaves out of port in the uh, morning, the weather, you know, the waters are, it could be very calm or smooth. You know, smooth sailing to where, hey, you know, we've got a great day outside here. Nothing could stop us. But come a few hours later, <clears throat> the weather can change out of nowhere. If it, If the conditions are just right, warm air, cold air colliding, Who knows exactly what it will result in, but when warm air and cold air collide, anything is possible. So, come, you know, only a few hours later, a ship gets caught in a violent storm. I mean, these things do happen. You know, violent storms can come out of nowhere, especially in the month of November when the skies turn gloomy. Here we go. Here's a uh, true or false question, Uh, true and false question for you guys. Is the Bradley moving straight into multiple weather patterns, true or false? The answer is true. She is going right into two different weather systems, which over the previous day, being November 17th, have emerged by becoming one potential dangerous storm. Two storms collide, meet up with one another to form that perfect storm. Kind of reminds me of uh, the movie um, about a little over 20 years ago that with uh, George Clooney, uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, The Perfect Storm, and how um, <clears throat> it was about 30 years ago, it was uh, in the early 90s, that a hurricane um, formed, but it was formed by a series of storms That um, obviously led to the, sadly, to the um, loss of uh, six um, men uh, aboard the Andrea Gale. So, you know, when a storm occurs, it's not just a storm by itself. Storms can collide, and if the the weather um, conditions are just right when those storms collide, they can become that one major storm, a.k.a. the perfect storm. So given that the bradley is moving into multiple weather patterns these uh weather patterns themselves have um come together and obviously have great potential to become one potential dangerous storm now how did these um weather systems come about let's uh let's do a little meteorological um study here folks for one, uh, a cold air mass uh, originated out of the Gulf of Alaska, and it moved downward into Canada, making its way into the western United States. Whereas, war- whereas a warm air mass front had moved northward from Mexico, and Mexico being the originating uh, point of this uh, warm air mass, pardon me, warm air mass uh, movement. I know some of you are thinking, how could a cold air mass that originates out of the Gulf of Alaska move downward into Canada, making its way into the western United States, have any kind of impact on um, the Great Lakes? Well, from what I read in this book, that, um, that tornadoes were um, found uh, to be um, as far north as Illinois Uh, in November leading up to this time, so, you know, this warm air moving northward and the cold air coming um, southward from the uh, Gulf of Alaska down into Canada. There you have it, folks. I mean, the conditions are right. Anything is possible when you have warm air and cold air colliding together. Okay, so we've learned now a little bit about these... um, weather systems being multiple weather patterns that the bradley is moving straight into what warnings weather wise have been issued november 17th for the day after or for the yeah for the next day after being november 18th on lake michigan what kind of warnings do you think were issued were they um blizzard warnings were they uh, gale warnings or were they um Or or were they just 101 um, wind warnings? The answer is choice B. They were uh, gale warnings. Does anybody know what the term gale means? Well, I can tell you this. It's spelled G-A-L-E. Of course, that's one way, that's one pronunciation. There there are two ways, or at least two or three ways, to spell um, a a person's name being gale. There's G-A-I-L. Then there's GALE and then there's GAYLE but for meteorological uh, terms, the word the word gale is spelled GALE. Gales, when we talk about multiple gales, they are strong winds. And you know sometimes it's easy to assume that when you have winds blowing at 25 miles an hour that's a strong wind. Well, for starters, that could be, but when I think of gale, gale force like winds, how about um, for starters? There uh, the ranges start out at thirty four knots. Um, I looked up. I have to admit, I did a little cheating, but I did it for the right reason. I, I'd look up on Wikipedia to get some more information about gale uh, warnings. So if you start out having um, strong winds within ranges of 34 knots that's uh, 63 kilometers or what we call 39 mile an hour winds and they can go as high as 47 knots being about 87 kilometers uh 54 miles an hour so gale uh, warnings are usually referred pertain to marine areas not only oceans but the great lakes so you don't you know you could be out on the river and you could have some um, strong winds, but you're not going to have what are called gale warnings out on a river. So that's what the um, the forecast center in Chicago um, had issued, warning-wise, were uh, gale warnings being those strong winds within the range of uh, 34 to 47 knots. So we're looking at 30, anywhere from 39 to 54 mile an hour winds. So the Chicago Forecast Center um, predicted gale warnings of winds moving 50 to 65 miles an hour from the southwest. So that exceeds not only the minimum threshold, but the maximum threshold for uh, what would be your average gale warning winds. 50 to 65 miles an hour. Of course, when I think of hurricane-like winds, I'm easily thinking, like, well over 100 miles an hour, but but if you have gale warning winds moving at about 50 to 65 miles an hour, that's not something to take lightly. Per the wind description that I just mentioned um, briefly, Lake Michigan is the last place anybody ought to be out on the water. If you uh, had received this warning... Sometime um, on the day of um, between November 17th and November 18th, and you had plans to want to take your boat out on Lake Michigan, I'd think twice. I'd say, you know what, let's just save it for another day. Our life isn't worth risking being out on the water. I mean, a boat could be replaced, but could a human life be replaced? The answer is no. So, we've already said that the last place that anybody ought to be is out on the water, given that the uh, wind that the Chicago Forecast Center has has, uh, determined that winds will be moving at about 50 to 65 miles an hour from the southwest. If a ship is moving uh, south, moving southward along Lake Michigan, it'll be moving close to the storm's path. If a ship is going northward along Lake Michigan's waters, the ship itself can get pounded from behind by rough waves, resulting in the ship working more than originally expected. This is interesting, okay, with a ship going uh, northward, for example, getting pounded from behind, that means that the stern will bear the greater brunt of the um weather activity to where um, the waves will make it so um, not only just rough the waves will be so unpredictable to where to where a ship could be become so stressed that that she could um, she could split I mean she could um she could roll I mean she could um, she could she could list you know when a ship lists I don't know if it know what that terminology means, uh, listing, whenever a ship uh, engages in listing movement, that's when a ship leans or tips to one side. So when you have these um, weather-like factors, anything can go wrong with a ship. I hate to say that, but that's where we have to be reminded that, you know, Mother Nature has got forces that are beyond our control. And uh, let me ask you this. Is it fair to say that Lake Michigan runs north and south? Yes. You know, some of the Great Lakes, like Huron and Superior, not only do they run north and south, but they also run east and west. Could it be fair to say that Lakes uh, Superior and Huron also border into Canada? Yes. But then again, we established early on that there was only one of the five Great Lakes that only um, that doesn't go into Canada, being Lake Michigan. Well, since Lake Michigan runs north and south, wave formation is inescapable. However, it would be fair to say that wave formation is escape is inescapable on any of the other Great Lakes, but. The thing about Lake Michigan, given that it runs north and south, what this basically means, folks, is that the waves themselves on Lake Michigan have the entire length of Lake Michigan to build up. Can you believe that, folks? I mean, Lake Michigan, given that it runs north and south, You know, yes, Lake Michigan is a big lake. It's not as big as Lake Superior. Uh, But then again, you could put Lakes Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario. They could all fit into Lake Superior. That's how big (laughs) Lake Superior is. But Lake Michigan's, the waves along Lake Michigan have the entire length to build up. So if conditions are just right, one can encounter... 15 to 20-foot waves, or worse, 25 to 30-foot waves. And if you're a ship out on the water in these um, drastic, um, what do you call it, drastic weather conditions, you, would, uh, a ship would never be able to have the time to turn around and seek shelter. Basically, a ship out on the waters being confronted by 15 to 20-foot waves, and anything greater 15 to 20 feet being 25 to 30. It's just only a matter of time before the ship itself could um, could be lost, could sustain uh, catastrophic damage to where the ship is no longer salvageable or uh, or an entire crew is lost at sea. And believe me folks, these waves do have the power to do some to do things that none of us have the power to control but once Mother Nature unleashes her fury, when it comes to these 15- to 20-foot waves and 25- to 30-foot waves, anything's possible. So when I uh, read that, that the uh, waves alone have the entire length of Lake Michigan to build up, that should serve to all of us a reminder of just how powerful Mother Nature is and that if, you, if you're not careful and you mess with her, she could throw some nasty curveballs that could uh, result, sadly, in the loss of life if you do not heed warnings when, when uh, properly um, told or when, not just so much properly told, but when you are told ahead of time. do some of the Bradley crewmen face internal challenges from within when out on Great Lakes waters? Well, you know, I think it's fair to say all of us struggle with something internally, no matter how big or small the issue itself presents. But I think it is fair to say that even um, the most advanced and skilled of crewmen aboard any freighter do have um, challenges of their own, hey, after all, none of us are perfect. But what I found interesting, and maybe I had to be reminded of, was that even um, crewmen aboard any of these freighters, some of them have internal fears and challenges that, uh, uh, that many of us would never think in a million years that they had. So, let's find out about some of the Bradley crewmen and what they are facing internally. Especially when they are out on the Great Lakes waters. That, to me, is uh, what's more important to talk about. Crewmen uh, from Watchmen, Mel Orr, to Stokermen, Marty Enos, don't know how to swim. So, can you imagine having some of your crewmen Working aboard a freighter and yet they don't know how to swim. Do you think it? I almost wonder did anybody from the Bradley Transportation Company ask these men before they came to work for them if they knew how to swim? Perhaps not. But then again, maybe it was fair to assume at, at, at this back in that time frame or time era that every man whom did work on the ships for the Bradley Transportation Company did know how to swim. Maybe that was just an automatic assumption. But sometimes we forget that there are people working in a particular profession, say like the shipping industry, who work on who who are out on the waters and yet they don't know how to swim. So what happens, folks? You know, we've got to ask ourselves this question. What if something does happen to this ship? Yes, they if they can get if they get their life jackets on, that's great. But just because you have your life jacket on it doesn't mean that you're um you know it doesn't mean that you're going to float forever in the water. You've got to be able to um get on a raft. But let's say you don't have that op- that option of getting on a raft. Let's say that you've got only a matter of minutes before you know that your ship could sink. I'm not trying to give anything away just yet, folks, but we just have to keep in mind that um, that it's always easy to assume that people who work on the ships, who are out on the waters, it, w- it might be automatic, it would be auto- easy to assume that they would know how to swim, that they would know how to um, handle themselves in the event of something catastrophic occurring. But we have to keep in mind, folks, that uh, some people don't do well under pressure. But then again, all of us at times may not do well under pressure, but as long as we have the opportunity to correct past um, flaws or past um, errors, that's what probably matters more than anything else. Then we have another man named Pete, Named little tongue twister there, folks, pardon me, named Pete Horn, who is an oiler. He is terrified of water. Then you have another fellow named Chick Valley who is a conveyor man who is very terrified of heavy waves and their potential in damaging a boat. I could see how one would be very afraid of heavy waves, and I could admit right now that if I was out on the walk if i if I worked out on on the great Lakes waters working on a um not just working on a freighter but being a part of a um Of say a thirty-five man crew like there was with the Carl Bradley, I would be terrified of of fifteen to twenty foot waves. I I can admit that I'm not that I try not to be terrified of a lot of things, but you know, it's one thing for for a minor uh, storm surge to happen, such as maybe a three foot wave, but when you have a fifteen to twenty foot wave, that to me gets into the rogue wave category those waves right there can do things that can um leave scars for people uh long term so i could see how chick a man like someone like chick valley not just because he's a conveyor man but i could see how he is very uh terrified of heavy waves after all chick valley for all we know has probably known of other men whom have worked on other boats for the Bradley Company or for other shipping companies, who um, who either lost their lives because of um, heavy waves that uh, destroyed their ships, or heavy waves heavy waves doing so much damage to a boat that um, that the boats that sustained those damages were no longer salvageable. And I could see how. Um it could be easy to be terrified of water i'm not afraid of water but at the same time i you know if i was one of these if i was in one of these men's shoes i might think differently especially if this is something you've been doing all your life and sometimes the older we get sometimes we do become perhaps a little bit more afraid of of certain um things that maybe we weren't once afraid of when first um beginning those, uh, tasks. Well, despite these men's individual fears, they still firmly believe in the Bradley. Well, that's good to know. If you firmly believe in your ship, you firmly believe in the captain, you firmly believe in everyone else around you whom you work with, then more power to you. That's what it really probably boils down to. Yes, you, you've got to, um, you've got to do everything you can to, uh, not let fear get the better of you. Um, because if you, because if these crewmen allow fear to take over them, then how are they going to be able to get the job done? Not just when they're out on the water, but the job done in general. How are you going to be able to uh, build trust with other crewmen? So basically, in many instances, you've got to do a good job of hiding these emotions even when you don't want to. A fellow named uh, Bill Chain, who is an uncle to Chick Valley, has for some time pleaded with Chick to work on another boat, as he re- remains firmly convinced that the Bradley herself isn't safe, and Chick doesn't budge. Do you know what I find interesting about this? Is that, you know, we talked about in the previous podcast about some of the uh, about a lot of the issues that the bradley was uh facing um internal structure wise given that she's just over 30 years old you know yes one could um go to another boat in the bradley company but that doesn't automatically mean that if you're on another boat that that the chances of you surviving um something deadly like what's like what's going to happen on November 18th, 1958, I mean, how do I say it? Just because you're on another boat, it doesn't mean that the chances of something going wrong will be uh, less likely to happen. The bottom line is is that no matter what boat you're on, it's not just for the Bradley Transportation Company, it could be for any boat, there's gonna be risks that you have to take. And yes, there's always a chance that you might come home alive, there's always a chance you might not, but, but this is where, to a degree, that you can't let fear take over you to the point where, if it does, then how can you, be, how can you go about properly functioning with the team as a greater whole? What is a conveyor man? G- given that that's the post that Chick Valley holds, the conveyor man is a crew person who's in charge of operating the boom, or what we call the free end, with unloading cargo. A stoker, a.k.a. a stoker man, tends to the ship's furnace by supplying it with fuel. And as for an oiler, the oiler is someone whom oils machinery to ensure proper systems are functioning, like sewage, lighting, water, to air conditioning um, unit systems. There's more to uh, being on a um, freighter vessel, folks, than uh, the than someone just um, being the wheelsman, that is, um, you know, turning the wheel and guiding the the ship on the water. You know, think about it. Everybody's got some kind, everybody's got an essential duty to perform on the ship, folks. Well, you know, yes, we've already learned uh, from the previous podcast that the Bradley um, first took flight to the waters in 1927, but what year did the Bradley Transportation Company, um, care of the uh, Michigan Limestone and Chemical Company, first begin operating? Was it in 1900? Was it in 1912? Or was it in um, 1920? Uh, the answer is 1912. 1912 would have also be the same year that for which the Bradley Transportation Company also constructed its first vessel freighter, being a 436-foot freighter known as the Calcite. Well, 1912 was also the same year, sadly, that the Titanic sunk. Whereas straight deckers required larger crews to assist in unloading unloading of uh, ore, coal, and grain, etc., Self-unloaders, like the Carl D. Bradley, used conveyor belts, which transported stone from gates into the bottom of cargo holds. So is it is it fair to say that, while yes, um, it is important to have people assist with the unloading of cargo, yes, but is it fair to say that if there are other means to cut down on the number of um, people needed for one particular task, why not come up with that invention if it's going to mean saving time? What does the uh, term uh, keel refer to? Alright, if any of you all aren't sure, I'll give you the answer at this time. Keel refers to the ship's backbone, which runs the entire length of a vessel. The Carl D. Bradley, interesting enough, is one of those vessels that has a lot of weight from front to back. But it doesn't have a whole lot of weight in the middle. Could that pose a problem for the Bradley? Yes, it could pose problems for any other ship. But, given that the um, Bradley has a lot of weight from its front, being from the bow section, and from the back, the far back, being the stern, how can uh, crewmen go about ensuring um, that uh, the distribution of cargo goes uh, smooth um, so that no other further um, unforeseeable issues could take place? Well, to ensure proper weight distribution of cargo, This means that the Bradley crewmen, like Chick Valley, must oversee cargo getting evenly distributed from one end to another. So in other words, you have, if you're going to, by evenly um, placing uh, an amount of cargo on the front side of the ship, you're also going to have to do the same for the back. Because if you don't, if, if one side is more, um, is not as evenly distributed as the other, it could lead to um, one side of the ship um, bending or sagging. You know, think about it if, to the point where um, if too much cargo is, um, is placed on one side of the ship, it could even list. The, so the bottom line is, folks, you know, if you want to ensure that, uh, that the ship's uh, cargo holds are safely in place, You've got to make sure that the cargo is evenly distributed. It's not. um, Don't think of it as like packing suitcases and just cramming everything in there, regardless of how how much something weighs or how much or whether or not a couple of pairs of clothing are bulkier than the other. Um, But when we're talking about freighter vessels, yeah, how you go about loading cargo um, can sometimes either make or break um, the stability of a ship. Are the uh, majority of the 35-man crew aboard the Carl D. Bradley from Rogers City, Michigan? Yes. How many uh, of the men would you say are from Rogers City? I'll give you a a number range. It's between 25 and 30. The answer is 26. 26 of the Bradley crewmen are Rogers City uh, residents. And you know, it's also interesting too, folks. Is that um, you know, it's one thing to be a part of the of uh, it's one thing to be part of uh, something big like a thirty five man crew. But is it fair to say that there are uh, people aboard this vessel, and the same for any other vessel on the Bradley Fleet, and the same for any other uh, shipping um, slash transportation company? It's fair to say that there are people aboard the uh, Carl D. Bradley, whom are related to one another. Like, take, uh, for example, watchman Alvy Budnick and deck watch uh, Frank Mays. They are second cousins. Wheelsman Ray Kowalski is married to deck watchman Gary Strezelecki's sister. Keith Schuler, the Bradley's third assistant engineer, is Chick Valley's nephew. It's fair to say that the Bradley Transportation Company's ships and their crewmen are all closely tight. Well, it is fair to say, though, in Rogers City, uh, the big employers are the Michigan Limestone Company, uh, the Port of Calcite. You know, Rogers City, by 1958, ha- is just shy of 4,000 residents, but the big employers are the uh, Transportation um or the Port of Calcite and the uh, Michigan Limestone Company, uh, U.S. Steel. So, with these, with these, uh, what do you call it, uh, companies? You know, everybody's bound to work for them, and everybody knows each other in some way or form or another. Do uh, some of the Bradley crewmen hope to advance themselves into uh, different career paths? Yes, believe it or not, some of them do. Uh, Take Carl Bartell, for example. He is hoping one day to become a park ranger as he likes being outdoors in the wild. Jim Selke, whom just recently graduated from City High, wants to pursue college, but for now goes to work with the Bradley Transportation Company by signing on to the Bradley as a porter. Anybody know what a porter is? Well, that's the lowest level um, position aboard a um, a Great Lakes freighter. Basically, the porter is um, mopping the floors. Um, he's also um, placing items in um, the cabinets. Think about it. He's placing, like, say, non-perishable items in the cabinet for uh, grocery-related, like, say, cereal, um, crackers. He's basically stocking even the refrigerator as well. Uh, the porter also um cleans up uh tables after people have um after other crewmen have eaten um their breakfast or dinner for example so that's what uh Jim Selke starts out doing but it turns out that he is the youngest crew member aboard the Bradley but he goes on to work with the Bradley transportation company just he sees it as a temporary uh job before he uh decides what he wants to do, uh, college, uh, before he decides what he wants to do later on down the road. Now, um, we may have mentioned about this person's name, uh, from the last podcast, but I'm, I'm going to mention him again because he will be mentioned, uh, quite a, a, bit more as we move, um, as we progress forward in this, um, podcast series, not just for this uh, segment, but for other segments down the road, Elmer Fleming, you all remember him? What is Elmer Fleming's rank aboard the Bradley? He is first mate. So what does first mate necessarily mean, folks? Well, for Elmer Fleming, he's second in command to the ship. In other words, he's just below captain. So if in the event, let's say, Captain Roland Bryan became ill aboard the ship and could not perform his duties, whom is he going to turn to to take over, he's going to turn to Elmer Fleming. So think of, like, you know, the captain of the ship. Think of that as, like, being the equivalent to the president of the United States. If the president of the United States can't fulfill his duties because of, say, um, an adverse medical condition, then, you know, if it is deemed that the president cannot perform those duties, then the powers would be transferred to the vice president until further notice. So, the first mate aboard the Carl D. Bradley is like the equivalent of a vice president. Well, Elmer Fleming um, is no slouch. In other words, he's no, or rather, I should say, he's no stranger to shipping. He has worked with the Bradley Transportation Company for 23 years, and by 1958, I mean, he's pretty much worked his way up the ladder. So, you know, he, he started out being a porter himself, But he has worked his way up into doing just about everything else there is. And he does have a goal one day of wanting to become captain. Now, first mate Elmer Fleming and Captain Roland Bryan work very well together, in large part because they have the same working philosophies. With the storm confronting the Bradley, Captain Bryan will rely on first mate Fleming's leadership in the pilot house, anybody know what pilot house refers to? The pilot house is an enclosed deck where the wheel and the map map room are located. It is the ship's uppermost deck. So, if you're facing a crisis aboard a ship, and not just a crisis in the ship, but we're talking about weather crisis here, you know, a, I mean, the Bradley is going into um, into. It's going into two weather storms that will become one. So for men like Elmer Fleming and Captain Roland Bryan and a few other select individuals like the second mate, they will meet in the uh, pilot house to discuss critical decisions on how to uh, maneuver the ship in the storm, where to uh, position the ship so that it will not... um, take on heavy waves to where it could result in either running aground that is hitting a rock um, in shallow water um, that would uh, lead to a major uh, fracture in the ship's hull. Uh, Anytime a ship runs aground um, that can spell disaster because in many instances ship when ships have run aground they're no longer salvageable. You know when I think of ships running aground they could be hitting shoals. You know uh, shoals are, are, are not just so much rocks, but they are, um, the best way to describe a shoal, if I can do that here, a shoal is a shallow area of water, usually marked by a sandbar, reef, or area of rising lake floor. So, anytime a ship ventures into shallower waters unintentionally, or intentionally thinking that even by being in shallow waters, they're, they're going to, be just fine, but once they uh run aground and hit a shoal, that's that's disaster. So being in the pilot house is going to help uh Captain Roland Bryan and Elmer Fleming and other um select individuals uh work together to decide how they're going to um make it through this um through this uh, ordeal that for one, um to many of them it's nothing new, but two for some of them they know that um, this is much different than the traditional uh, Great Lakes uh, storm weather pattern. By the time um, Elmer Fleming returned to the pilot house for his 4 to 8 p.m. shift the storm has intensified. Earlier there were 10 to 15 foot waves but now they are approaching 20 feet and higher. This is this is scary folks I mean You know, just a short while ago, it seemed like everything was okay, even though, yes, the weather conditions were going to play some form of havoc, but now we're looking at 20-foot waves and higher. And if that's bad enough, folks, how about the potential for snow before night's end? You know, earlier in the day, folks, uh, on November 18th, like in Rogers City, it was unseasonably warm in the 60s. And as the day was coming to an end by mid to late afternoon, the weather had dropped drastically. Winds from the southwest were really picking up. So what does that tell you right there, folks, that Roger City has felt the adverse impacts of Mother Nature's fury when warm and cold air collide? You know, one unique advantage that Elmer Fleming has, and this is something that we will have to keep in mind and take into consideration because it will be discussed again in another podcast. Is it fair to say, though, that uh, when the weather changes and you're out on the waters that you need to be well clothed? Yes. I mean, for one, yes, you want to be wearing jeans or wearing, you know, long pants. You want to be wearing a long sleeve shirt and you want to be wearing a jacket as well, you want to be wearing something 101 that's going to keep you warm knowing that the temperatures are dropping. But but for Elmer Fleming, what he has done is that he is um, he is basically very well insulated because he knows that... I mean, he's only been on the waters, folks, for 23 years, so wouldn't it be fair to say within the 23 years he's been on the waters he's seen just about everything? Yes. So that means that, okay, come November... Skies turn gloomy, you know November being the most uh, dead the deadliest of all months to be on Great Lakes waters. yeah, you want to be dressed warmly as possible because what starts out in the morning is being perhaps a little unseasonably warm come afternoon being a lot um, more frigid. yeah, you definitely want to have uh, have um, backup clothes to change into to be prepared for anything unexpected so yes elmer fleming is well clothed to where he will stay warm even as the temperatures drop fleming also goes about ordering the deck crew to perform a thorough inspection by helping ensure that everything inside and out is properly secured well you need to go about ensuring that everything aboard the ship inside and out is secured if not you can expect uh catastrophic damage on both ends. Uh, Did Captain Roland Bryan advise personnel in Rogers City that his ship and crew weren't going to arrive on time? Yes, Uh, this helped prevent keeping people waiting around the dock for an indefinite time wondering when the Bradley would arrive, and it also helped the Bradley crew give the people in Rogers City a better idea regarding a more definitive arrival time. The Bradley on the evening of November 18th is the only boat on the water with the exception of one ship in the opposite direction. Boy, that's, um, I don't know what that uh, means, folks, but if you don't have a whole lot of other ships out on the water and something does happen, boy, you really could be hard-pressed for luck in terms of getting assistance when it's sorely needed. Because you never know where the other ship may be in location to where your ship is if in the event something goes horribly wrong. Whereas uh, Elmer Fleming has worked for the Bradley Transportation Company uh, 23 years. And here's another man's name we're going to learn a great deal about not just in this episode but in other episodes. His name is uh, Frank Mays. How long has Frank Mays been working for the uh, Bradley Transportation Company? Has he been working more than 10 years, or less than 10 years? Uh, less than 10 years. Since June of 1950, when he, began just, when he began working for the company just after graduating from high school. And Frank is no uh, stranger to uh, the waters, because he has two older brothers who also sail. But by 1958, he is already married with three young boys. Frank Mays served as a deckhand. Which means that he oversees the maintenance of the Bradleys' hull, decks, including the superstructure, being the structures and cabinets built above the ship's hull, to ensuring that the coal bunkers' clamps were secured. That's quite a task right there, folks. Does the Bradley Transportation uh, Company have a good safety record? True or false? Do you think they have a good transport, good um, safety record? Oh, the answer is true. You know, ever since the uh, company got started in 1958, they have never lost a ship. And back, and uh, back in March of 1958, the company also got recognition for being the first company ever to go a thousand days straight without any injuries. That's a milestone to itself, folks. But it, wa- it was one that just wasn't handed to them. They earned it, just like any other company would have. But it just seems like that nothing could go wrong uh, for the Bradley Company. Well, given that darkness has already set in outside by 5 o'clock, what took place just after Frank Mays and another deckhand mate finished inspecting the dunnage, inspecting dunnage, a.k.a. storage room facility? Okay. Here we are, folks, November 1958, so... Just after 5 o'clock, it's pretty much become pitch black. But what did happen? Out of nowhere, a loud booming sound, or rather I should say a noise, emerged from the ship's backside, resulting in the Bradley's alarm go- alarm bell going off. Whatever this uh, sound was, or noise, folks, it's not good. Frank Mays and his roommate leave immediately for higher ground with life jackets by their side. How ironic that they (laughs) had time to climb up the uh, two flights of uh, stairs, and yet they still made it into their room to get what was essential. By the time they um, get up to um, upper level, being the upper deck, but what they see totally stuns them, being that the Bradley herself has snapped right around the 10th hatch. Hatches are openings in the spar deck where cargo is loaded. Frank Mays and his roommate, Gary Price, left at the right time from below as water is now taking over the ship's structure. So if those two men had waited a little bit longer, they probably could have been swept away by the water. That's how fast the water itself is coming. What do Captain Bryan and First Mate Elmer Fleming witness firsthand from the pilot house from the pilot house's port door? Each man is witnessing the Bradley stern flapping out of control, meaning that after one violent twist or turn she will do just about anything else beyond her control. Is it fair to say, folks, that this ship was on its last you know, that old saying, nine lives, you know, when we think of nine lives, you know, we think of the cats. We think of, you know, the animals, like Morris the cat, nine lives. I'm not trying to joke around here, folks, but is it fair to say that perhaps the Carl D. Bradley might have used, might be in the process now of having used up its nine lives, especially if it's, um, stern is flapping out of control to the point that uh with the waves coming in hitting this ship and you know the ship's um what do you call it the the uh, tube uh, the tubing is um it's not flexible the the metal that was um used or rather i should say the steel it was of a lower grade and it's becoming very brittle it's been perhaps brittle for some time and is it fair to say that the rivets are stressed out too? This ship is on borrowed time, folks. So due to the constant sagging, that is, up and down movements along with flapping on the stern, the main deck is bending and straightening at the same time until a huge crack, which ran the entire width of the Bradley, results in splitting the deck's surface. Folks, the Bradley is breaking apart in two sections. This is frightening to think that that the inevitable truly is happening. For many of these men, something like this can only happen to other ships, but not the Bradley. I mean, she's, what, 32 years old? You know, she's had a stellar record. I mean, yes, she's... <laughs> Loaded 16 between 16 18,000 tons of cargo. She was setting records left and right. How could something go so wrong? Well, you know what, folks, <laughs> ships don't last forever, and ships can take on wear and tear. Sometimes when we don't think they're, um, sometimes when we least expect it. But this ship wasn't this ship supposed to have undergone. Um, repairs wasn't it supposed to have gone to um gone to a uh, port outside of um sheboygan wisconsin to be um docked up yes but look what's happening now folks the inevitable is happening elmer fleming returns to the pilot house where he sends an urgent message being a mayday warning the Bradley is 12 miles southwest of Gull Island. He advises Marine Channel 51 that the ship is breaking in two and sinking. And to make matters worse, folks, the Bradley's living quarters are split up, and because the deck is now split apart, the boat's two sections come together only when waves lift, only when wave lifts the stern, and slams it straight into the bow section. To make matters worse, the lifeboats are in the back of the ship, where nobody on the forward side can reach them. First Mate Fleming continues his desperate pleas via Mayday message for, hel- for help, hoping someone will respond back. You know, folks, this is... This is... a. Uh, this is frightening. I mean, this is uh, I can't imagine being on the ship and I'm looking at the um at the or how do I call it the 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 artist who uh did the uh front um did the book jacket, the uh cover of this uh book. it it, it basically um details what truly probably did happen to the Bradley when she split in two and you can see the stern hitting the bow. And while the waves may not look huge, if you look carefully at the stern and the wave next to it, that's a big wave. Don't be fooled by what an artist's picture can um, can tell us, because even that has a story onto itself. Well, you know, we've covered a lot of ground uh, tonight and uh when i'm back on the air again next we're going to learn more about about whether or not someone does receive a mayday um re- receives the mayday uh warnings that have been um that have been uh called upon by captain elmer fleming from um from marine channel 51 which is in uh, rogers city michigan but we will um, find out more about that we will learn some other things as well too But is it fair to say that the Bradley is in a life-and-death situation? Yes. Maybe not just so much the ship, but her crewmen are in a life-and-death situation as well, knowing that the lifeboats are are on the opposite side. Um, And is it fair to say that maybe some of the crewmen don't even have life jackets on? Is it fair to say that maybe some of them don't even have proper clothing on? And could it be that some of these men were awakened by the um, bell alarm? Could it be? Is it fair to say that they could have already been asleep, only to be forced to awaken without any advanced warning? Yes, all of that is possible, or I should say, all that's very likely. So we just need to be reminded of the fact, of the fact, folks, that whenever uh, we're out on the waters, we can't take our safety for granted. But in the month of November, being out on Great Lakes waters, nothing's certain, especially when the skies of November turn gloomy. Well, thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon uh, when we discuss more to The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, a true story of loss, survival, and rescue at sea. Take care for now, and stay safe.